Well, listen, here's the deal. No clever introduction, no little illustration or funny story to get started today. We just got to get right into it. We just got to zip right to the point today because we have so much to cover. These two verses, only two verses that we're going to cover today are so packed with meaning and transformative power. And, you know, we got a lot to talk about today. So buckle up, ladies and gentlemen. Here we go. Remember, though, where we've come from so far. I'm a kind of review guy. I like to review to kind of remember uh, what we've covered so far. And it will become important as we cover two verses today. This is Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Paul is staying at his friend Gaius's house in Corinth. He is dictating this letter to a friend named Tertius. And Paul, as we learned uh, week one, is four things. He's Jewish. He's zealous. He's transformed and he's experienced. Paul is Jewish through and through. Again, this is going to become critical today because as Paul uses some words and phrases in these two verses we're going to cover, we have to remember to see them through a first century Hebrew mindset. So Paul's concepts of Messiah, Paul's concepts of righteousness, and his concept of community are all framed by and shaped by his Jewishness. Not only was Paul Jewish, but before he started following Jesus, he was zealous. That is to say, he was zealous to purify the nation of Israel of those who weren't as strict with the law as he was. Paul was a Pharisee, according to the law, the strictest group that followed the Jewish law as closely as possible. And, and he was looking to kind of purify the nation of Israel from those who would kind of be tangential and off the track a little bit. But that was before... He had a transformational experience on the road to Damascus. He was actually on the road to Damascus in order to persecute these followers of the way, which at that time would have been kind of a, a new iteration of Judaism, which would have been outside of Paul's understanding of what it meant to be Jewish. Those followers of the way, of course, were the early Christians. But instead of arriving in Damascus to persecute them, Paul had an experience with the risen Christ and he was transformed on the spot and he was different and he began to follow Jesus and preach Jesus all over the Mediterranean world for 25 years, as a matter of fact. So by the time he writes this letter to the church at Rome, he is experienced and that is really an understatement. 25 years on the road where he has been abandoned and snake bitten and imprisoned and beaten and you know all sorts of different hardships and of course joys along the way as well. And he pours all of this experience into his letter to the church at Rome. Remember in Romans chapter one, verses one through seven, we said that Paul sees himself as three things, as a servant or a slave to Jesus. He has been sent into the world to preach the gospel and set apart for the gospel of God. And this gospel, this euangelion, this good news is something we're going to cover a little bit more in depth today. And so uh, I'll save that for just a few minutes from now. Then in Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 15, is what we talked about last week, Paul addresses the church at Rome directly with some personal comments. And he reminds them, look, the mission is mutual here. And the priority is the gospel. And we together, sumparakaleo, we are together in this calling to preach the good news to the nations. And Paul concludes these introductory remarks about himself and these personal remarks to the church at Rome with this verse here. It's Romans chapter one, verse 15. He says, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. 
And this is critical because now Paul is going to transition into what is the thesis of his entire letter to this church. And Paul writes this. He says, for I am not ashamed. The reason why that verse Romans 1.15 is critical is because this word can also be translated because. So why is Paul eager to preach the good news to you also who are at Rome? Because he is not ashamed and he goes on from there. And so now that we've kind of reviewed and now that we've kind of seen where Paul is headed in Romans chapter one, uh, verses 16 and 17, let's do what we've done for the last couple of weeks. Let's break the text up phrase by phrase. Let's take a look at some of these concepts and the original Greek words. We'll do the NLT, the New Lucas translation, and we'll apply it. So buckle up, grab your pens, grab your Bibles, grab your notebooks and journals, and let's get into the passage together. First, let's break it up. We already started with this word for, and we're just going to hit our first break there. For, I am not ashamed, break, of the gospel, break, for it is the power of God, break, for salvation, break, to everyone who believes, break. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, we're going to include this whole phrase together. We're not going to get into it too much today because Paul will get into it a little bit more as the letter goes on. We'll just hit on it really quickly. So we'll just kind of capture that all together. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, break, from faith for faith, break. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And that's our final break. Now, my hope is that you have a physical Bible in front of you. If you don't, that's okay. As always, we've got the scripture up here uh, for you to read along with us. But my hope is that you are making these marks in your physical Bible and breaking up the passage as well. It really is a great tool for when you study your Bible on your own. And so we've broken up these two verses, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And I'm going to read it one more time, just so we can kind of get a big picture as to what Paul is talking about. And then we'll get into the granular detail here, okay? So Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Okay, let's take these words and phrases one at a time. First, Paul says for, and we've already said this is why he's saying it. He says, I am eager to preach the gospel because. And then he says, I am not ashamed. Now. Very interesting word here. The Greek word for a shame that Paul is using here is episkunomai. Episkunomai, from whence we get our modern English word for nothing, as a matter of fact. There's not a episkunomai in you know, modern English. And actually, that's going to serve us well today, that we don't have an English cognate, because when Paul says, I'm not ashamed, there is so much richness and depth to this word that we need to understand because what Paul says here, I'm not ashamed. He's not saying I'm not embarrassed. 
He's not saying, I am confident or assured. He is saying those things, but it's far deeper and richer than that. And so I want to take just a little bit of time to understand what it is Paul means when he says, I am not ashamed. And if you're a note taker, don't write any of this down. Just listen, take it in, and then I will uh, kind of let you know when you can jot a couple of things down to kind of help us understand this concept when Paul says, I am not ashamed. In order to understand, again, Paul's vision of shame, we need to understand, again, that Paul was very, very Jewish. And so his understanding of shame would have been shaped by the Old Testament and even as far back as the creation story. You might recall this, that when God created man and woman and placed them in the garden, the very final verse of Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, just before the fall and sin, says that man and woman, original man and original woman, were naked and not ashamed. This doesn't mean that they weren't wearing any clothes and they didn't have body image issues. There's much more to it than that. They were completely and totally vulnerable. That's what that naked word means. They, were, uh, they, they had no secrets between the, the two of them and between them and God. They, they were totally vulnerable before Him. And remember, in order to solve that problem, they ended up hiding from God. Do you remember that in Genesis chapter 3? So in the same way, when we're told that uh, they are unashamed, what we need to look at is how they attempted or maybe even better yet, how humankind attempted to solve their shame problem as the book of Genesis goes on. So in Genesis chapter 11, uh, verse 4, we're told that then they said, and this is humankind, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, listen closely, so that we might make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. See, in order to solve their shame problem that came into the world from sin and wrecked this unashamedness that humankind had before God pre-fall, uh, humanity attempted to make a name for themselves. They attempted to exalt themselves. They attempted to exert power and acquire wealth and build a tower in order to, let's just use this word, honor themselves. And here we have, even in the creation story and the early accounts of humankind, the beginnings of and the roots of what's called a shame honor culture. Now, if you grew up in the Western world like I did, this might be a new concept to you and for you. If you grew up kind of in the Middle East or in the Far Eastern world, you're thinking, I know exactly what a shame on our culture is. Don't spend any more time on it. This is my family growing up. I get it. Okay, you get it. But for those of you who may be like me, I want to explain a little bit of what a shame on our culture looks like. And remember, this is rooted in the Old Testament story. And this is very much a part of Paul's experience. So listen to what one Bible scholar, one historian named Michael Gorman writes about shame, honor cultures. He says, simply define, honor and shame refer to the ongoing attribution or loss of esteem by one's peers, family, social class, city, and so on. 
In Roman society, disrespect was based primarily on such things as wealth, education, rhetorical skill, family pedigree, and political connections. These were culture status indicators. In this context, self-esteem would have been conceived of as a ridiculous oxymoron. The only steam one has is bestowed by, not by the self, but by the group. In this environment, peer pressure is not negative or something to avoid, but it is viewed as, an appro- as appropriate and welcome. You see, in a shame-honor culture, it's all about the community around me. What do other people think of me? How do I compare with those who are honored, who have political connections, wealth, power, uh, or, or authority positions? What have I done? What have I achieved? Do I have power, money, attention, and recognition? And for some of you, you know, in the culture that you grew up in, that was the reality. This was the reality for Paul in the Roman world and also in Hebrew culture. This is why you have Jesus talking at length about things like, hey, when you go into a meal, don't sit in the place of honor so that if you have to be moved, you will incur shame upon yourself. He's trying to push back against that shame, honor, culture. This is why you have Jesus talking about things like, hey, when you hold a meal, invite a bunch of people who are kind of on the outskirts and are different social status than you so that you would honor people who have been shamed. He's again, pushing back against this shame on our culture. So here are just five quick things, five quick things to kind of capture, summarize what it is that's happening in a shame on our culture. And this is a culture that Paul is writing in and the mindset he's writing from. Now, if you're jotting down notes, jot these down. In this culture, shame equals defeat and honor equals power. Shame equals defeat and honor equals power. This is why you hear the psalmist say this, listen, Psalm 25, verses one through three. In you, O Lord, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Do you see the comparison that the psalmist is making here? Shame equals defeat and honor equals power and victory. That's the first thing. Second, in this particular culture, death was better than being shamed. Death was greater than shame. People would rather die with honor than live with shame. Being shamed, being thought of as not powerful, not recognized, your family or community around you, bringing shame upon you was even worse than dying. Yowza. Number three, in a shame and honor culture, others matter most. What others think, what your family thinks, what your peers think, what authority figures think, how people see you. I actually Googled this this week. A guy named William James in 1890 first coined the term self-esteem. That is to say, in and of myself, I, I give myself worth and honor. Okay, again, just as we read a minute ago from that particular Bible scholar, Michael Gorman, uh, that in that culture, self-esteem would have been considered a ridiculous oxymoron because any esteem or honor that you might receive 
which is the antithesis of shame, would be received from the community around you. So others matter most. Number four, every second is a trade. In a shame honor culture, every second is a trade. Here's what I mean by that. Relationships weren't just relationships. Meals weren't just meals. Speaking with someone wasn't just speaking with someone. It was all this dance of how to figure out how to avoid shame and acquire for myself honor. So shame for Paul is not simply about embarrassment, is it? Shame is synonymous with losing. Shame is worse than death. Shame is the complete loss of power, status, and privilege. So it makes sense that in this culture, first century Roman and Hebrew culture, shame was to be avoided at all costs. And this, my friends, is why the gospel of Jesus is so extraordinary and revolutionary. Listen very closely. Because in the gospel and at the cross, the one who had all authority, the one who had all power, the head honcho, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, took on shame for himself in order to bestow onto you and me honor. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah writes about this coming Messiah in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. Uh, Speaking from the first person perspective of the Messiah, I gave my back to those who strike. You can already hear and see. This is Jesus turning his back to be whipped before going to the cross. And my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. That word disgrace there in Isaiah chapter 50. Can you guess what that word is in the Hebrew? It's shame. I hid not my face from shame. This is why Paul writes to the church at Philippi. He says, Jesus was in very nature God, but he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, the most shameful place he could be in. Jesus took on shame on our behalf. Paul says now that he is not ashamed. Why? Because Jesus took that shame for him. So if Paul is not ashamed, what is he? Well, if if we take that to mean embarrassment, that means he's confident or proud. But again, we just said that that word for shame is not, you know, embarrassment. It's much more than that. So the opposite is honor. Paul is honored by the gospel. What is Paul saying? He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it does not shame me, but it honors me. And you might be thinking, oh my gosh, Luke, you can't say that. The gospel honors God. Yes, ultimately the gospel honors God. But in the good news of Jesus Christ, what's happening is Jesus accepts the shame that we earn for ourselves and bestows on us honor. This word in the original uh, Greek, and, and Paul will use it in Romans chapter 8, is dokeo. It means uh, recognition. What do kind of my peers and other people think around me? What am I, what am I recognized for? That's where we get the, that's where the Greek word doxa comes from, which is the word for glory. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter eight. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. So here's what Paul is saying. He's saying the human's value is no longer defined by the group 
or the family. Your value is not defined by you or your reputation or your net worth or your vocation. Your value is defined by God. The gospel does not shame you. It honors you because in it, the highest rank became the lowest rank and subjected himself to shame so he could purchase me and you for himself, esteem you and eventually glorify you. Paul is saying that the good news means that Jesus took on shame so that we could be on the winning side, valued above all, valued above all, loved and honored. For I am not shamed. This is what Paul's getting at. I would just invite us even to pause here and say, how do we apply this? Look, what, what does this mean for my day-to-day life? Uh, it means something right here, right now, as a matter of fact. Here's the only thing I could come up with in terms of a response to this notion of Paul saying, I am not ashamed, and thus you are not ashamed either. We just want to thank God. Thank God that he took on the lowest rank in order to give us honor. He sacrificed esteem and privilege and power and wealth and all those markings of honor. He gave them all away and took our shame upon him in order to give us honor. Man, oh man, that is such good news. Here's what we're going to do for the next 30 seconds-ish. We're just going to pause and pray. I would invite you to do uh, this in your home as you're listening or wherever you're at. Just take 30 seconds and pray. Say, thank you, God, that I am not shamed, but in the gospel you have honored me. I would invite you to take 30 seconds and just thank God. How many words do we have? For I am not ashamed. Five words in? <laughs> we, got a, we got a ways to go here, so let's keep going, okay? Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Remember, this original Greek word is euangelion. It's, it's good news. It's, it's good tidings. It's, it's good herald. And, and listen, I, I want to review this just a little bit because I think it's really, really critical. This gospel, this good news is not simply that Jesus came to die for your sins in order to forgive you so that you could go to heaven when you die. I mean, yes, that's true that Jesus died to forgive your sin, but it's far more than that. It's far richer than that. It's it's far more sophisticated than that. Remember, Paul is writing from a first century Jewish mindset. His his understanding of or, or the shape of who this Jesus Christos, which is the Greek word for Messiah, right? It would have been decidedly shaped by an Old Testament mindset and an Old Testament concept of Messiah. So 
Paul, as was the rest of the nation of Israel, was expecting the Messiah to do three things. Check it out. And if you're jotting down notes, it's up here on the screen. Jot these things down. The Messiah was to be a new king, establish a new world order and new community. You can just write the word new and then underneath that word, write those three words, new king, world order and community. New king, new world order, new community. And in order to kind of help us understand uh, these words, I'm going to let Wikipedia do some work here. Uh, Wikipedia defines king this way, the male ruler of an independent state, especially one who inherits the position by right of birth. So here it is. Jesus is the new king. He's the ruler, the monarch, the head honcho of an independent state, and he has inherited that right by birth. Namely, he comes from the line of David, which Paul mentions in Romans chapter 1, verse 1 through 7. Second, Jesus came to establish a new world order. This would have been a Hebrew mindset, and Paul would have understood that Jesus came to establish a new world order. Once again, Wikipedia defines a new world order this way. It refers to a new period in history evidencing dramatic change in world political thought and the balance of power. Jesus came to overthrow existing power structures. He came to overthrow that honor-shame mentality. He came to overthrow all of those things and revolutionize the world. He came to establish a new world order. So he was a new king who established a new world order. And finally, he established new community. Community is defined this way. A group of people living in the same place or having a particular characteristic in common. But the community that pre-existed Jesus rallied around common interests, or they rallied around their desire to survive, or they rallied around uh, you know, power or wealth or whatever. But now in Jesus, this new king, in new world order, he's established new community in which all are welcome. The hungry are fed, the lonely find friends, the least are exalted to the greatest. The wolf and the lamb lie down together. The leopard lies with the goat. This is a complete and total overturn of, of, of first century Roman and first century Hebrew mindset and 21st century Western mindset. This Paul says, this is the good news. Not that when you breathe your last, you can go to bliss, but that Jesus came to make all things new as the new king establishing new world order and new community. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And Paul says, for it is the power of God. Love that word. In the original language, it's dunamos. It's where we get our modern word dynamite. This explosive power of God, this catalytic power of God is evidenced in the gospel. And you might be making the connection between shame and power. I hope that you are. Because remember, in that culture, power was the antithesis of shame or honor. People who, who were honored had power. Paul says this gospel, this revolutionary turnover of all things is the power of God for salvation, for salvation. This original Greek word is soteria. And so now that we've seen Paul talk about shame and honor and power and good news, and it's a new king, new world order, new community, this word salvation, soteria, takes on a much deeper and richer meaning, doesn't it? This is not just salvation from hell, but salvation from shame, salvation from power imbalances, redemption from hopelessness, from brokenness, 
redemption and salvation from that nagging internal feeling that you are not good enough, you are not smart enough, and doggone it, people don't like you. Guess what? In the gospel, God likes you. He loves you, in fact, and that love is extended to his whole creation, which he will save or deliver from composition, from decomposition and decay. This word is far deeper than we could have ever dreamed. And he says it's extended to everyone who believes. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this word because we're going to spend more time on it down here. It's the Greek word pistuo. We talked about it last week to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So again, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this phrase because Paul talks about it more uh, in the, uh, the rest of his letter. But this makes sense because this, God's plan for salvation started by building a family called the Hebrew people through Abraham. It came to the Jew first. And now that invitation is extended to all humankind, uh, uh, Jews as well as non-Jews or Jews as well as Gentiles. All right. So that's verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Let's move on to verse 17. Paul writes this, he says, For in it, in the good news, the righteousness of God is revealed. Here's one more opportunity for us to not be anachronistic, that is to say to apply our modern Western kind of 21st century concepts of righteousness over the top of Paul's Jewishness. Let's let Paul and his Jewishness define righteousness in the Greek, diaikosune, and it would have been a Hebrew understanding of righteousness. So in his commentary on uh, this particular passage, a guy named Doug Moo does a good job kind of uh, talking a little bit about what our complication might be here because Paul says it's the righteousness of God. So what is he talking about? Is, does that, is that God's character, like an attribute of God, that God is righteous? And this initially is what Martin Luther struggled with because he thought God's moral character of righteousness is the place from whence his justice flows. So because of God's righteousness, he is just to sinners. So how is that good news? Or Martin Luther would read text in the Old Testament that says, the righteousness of God will deliver me. So God's righteousness will deliver me. Like, how is that good news? That doesn't make any sense. But Doug Moo points out that in this particular case, it's God's righteousness. And the notion here or the sense in the original language, language is more that this is righteousness done by God. The act of God putting you or me or Paul or Martin Luther into right standing with him. Let's take it one step further. Listen to what W.R. Smith writes about, again, this concept of righteousness from a Hebrew mindset. He writes that the ideas of right and wrong among the Hebrews are forensic ideas. That is, the Hebrew always thinks of the right and wrong as if they were to be settled before a judge. Righteousness to the Hebrew is not so much a moral quality, but a legal status. Let me say it again. Righteousness is to the Hebrew not so much a moral quality, but a legal status. So Paul is saying this is a legally declared right standing before God that comes 
from God. God is the author of placing us in right standing before him. In the gospel, that right pudding is revealed. And to whom does it apply? It applies to those who have faith. We talked about this word last week. It's the Greek word pistuo. It means active trust. And Paul's using a, a Greek idiomatic expression here. This word in the original is ache, and this is ace. From faith for faith. That's a literal translation, but it might even be better said by faith from first to last. Some Bible translations that you're using might even uh, be translated that way. It's uh, this starts and ends with faith, and there is no in-between. This is not a works-based righteousness. This is a faith-based righteousness. When we place our active trust in God, He declares us right before Him, and that comes from Him. It's a legal status and declaration. And this is where the doctrine of justification by faith alone came from. It's from Martin Luther struggling with this very verse. And this is what defines even modern Christian orthodoxy now, is that we are justified, placed in right standing before God by faith alone, through His grace alone, and now, not just we're placed in right standing before Him, but the righteous, those who are in right standing before God, shall live by faith. Shall live by faith. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that we live by faith? Well, once again, I've got to understand Paul's concepts here. Paul is quoting directly from an Old Testament prophet, a guy named Habakkuk. I've said this before in our uh, time together that if you're looking for great baby names, Habakkuk, I think, is a great name. Habakkuk was a 7th century BCE prophet, and the nation of Israel at that time was being oppressed by its enemies. The wicked were winning. Listen to what Habakkuk writes in Habakkuk 1, verse 13. He says, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. So he's talking to God. You have so, your eyes are so pure, you cannot see evil, you cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? He's saying to God, why aren't you doing anything about this? And so God gives Habakkuk a vision. And that vision is, hey, the wicked are not going to prosper forever. The wicked aren't always going to win. Those who oppress you will not oppress you forever. A day is coming, Habakkuk. A day is coming when I will put the world to rights and the oppressor will no longer win. And listen to what Habakkuk writes in chapter two, verse four. For still, this verse three, sorry. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. So the vision hasn't been accomplished yet, Habakkuk writes. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay, verse four. Behold, his soul is puffed up it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. There it is. There's the quote. Habakkuk is saying to the nation of Israel, the vision hasn't been accomplished yet. 
the vision of the renewal of all things, the vision where the oppressor will be overthrown and the wicked will no longer triumph. It, it hasn't happened yet, but you got to place your active trust that it will and let that trust in a future hope govern your life now. And even now, Paul says to those who are Christians and have put their hope in the good news about Jesus, he has inaugurated a new kingdom, but he has not yet completed that new kingdom. But one day he's going to come and we place our active trust in him. Those who have been set right before him place our active trust that one day the wicked will no longer prosper. One day Jesus will crack open the sky and put the world to rights and restore all things. And this grand redemptive plan that he set into motion 2000 years ago will finally be completed. And the leopard will lay down with the lamb and there will be no more power structures and abuse and hurting and pain. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. It hasn't happened yet. But those who have been set right before him, you got to live by faith now in your future hope. How do you apply this one? Set your watch ahead about 12 hours. What? <laughs> yeah, set your watch ahead about 12 hours. Here's what I mean by that. There's been a couple times where I've traveled internationally and crossed over a number of time zones. I've traveled internationally quite a bit, but when you travel internationally and you cross over 12, 13 hours of time zones, man, it can mess you up. We got someone actually on our staff here that's in Hong Kong right now and has crossed a, a bunch of time zones, obviously, to get there. And so she'll dial into calls at like three o'clock in the morning. It's wild. But a lot of times, here's the trick. Before you travel internationally and you cross a bunch of time zones, you set your watch ahead, whatever number of hours you need to, eight, nine, 10 hours. So while it's maybe 1 p.m. or 2 p.m. here in Toronto, it's like 10 p.m. or 11 p.m., in the place that you'll be three or four days from now. So it's time to go to bed. And your friends are going, why are you going to bed at 1 p.m.? It's one o'clock in the afternoon, it's lunchtime. You're like, no, 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 the place where I'm gonna be, it's 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night, it's bedtime for me. So here's the deal, as Christians, we're living in this moment of a little bit of jet lag. A little bit of a moment where we do confusing stuff in the meantime, like go to bed at 10 or 11 o'clock at night or exalt the humble. Or, or, or we try to reach out and be generous with our things or not acquire for ourselves power. We're doing some things that, that doesn't really make sense to the world. But when we finally travel into that new time zone, let's call it, this future hope when Jesus comes back and puts the world to rights, all of our activity and action are going to make sense. And so we need to live in this moment here, but with our watch set to the kingdom of God. 12 hours or however many years, if the Lord tarries away from now, we look to a future hope and we live in that future hope because we are those who have been placed in right standing before God and we live by faith. Okay, let's just conclude by reading the passage one more time in uh, modern language. For the good news honors me and does not shame me. Because the good news is the very power of God for salvation for all who believe. It began with the Hebrew people and now God's invitation is extended to all of humankind. For in the good news, right standing with God is given to us by God and our experience of it begins and ends with faith. And now, just as the Old Testament prophet wrote, those who are now in right standing with God 
will live by faith in that future hope.